Hello everyone. In this episode of the Hewlett Packard Lab podcast from research to reality, I have great honor and pleasure to host Shomendu Sarkar, the senior distinguished technologist in Hewlett Packard Labs. Hello Shomendu. Hello Dan, it's a pleasure to- uh, meeting you and talking about trustworthy AI. Uh, Shomendu, as he already mentioned, is going to talk about trustworthiness in AI. Extremely important topic. But before we go there, Shomendu, tell us a little bit more. Uh, how did you come into this role? You are the first senior distinguished technologist uh, we have on this podcast. Yeah, so I started my career in an IBM offshoot in India, working on speech recognition. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Pennsylvania uh, in the mid-90s, um, uh, working on the first digital relay for General Electric, um, uh, which had uh, the Texas uh, TI DSPs and Intel RISC processors. Uh, it was to protect the power grid. Uh, and then I moved to Bell Labs uh, in 96. I worked there for uh, 15 years in the Bell Labs Advanced Technologies uh, team, uh, working on uh, various fun products, which were uh, leading uh, products globally, like the modems, um, the Wi-Fi, the speech, uh, the cellular gateways, uh, the video. Uh, DSL and a lot of fun stuff. Uh, so then I moved to uh, Silicon Valley, like many of you, and I joined Intel uh, in the Intel Architecture uh, Group um, and worked on the IP for uh, the computer vision uh, for the COEs. And then I uh, went uh, to do my own startup um, uh, and uh, worked on a lot of fun uh, projects on um, on deep learning and computer vision mm-hmm. and I joined HP um, it was a pleasure um, in 2017 uh, in the new AI team which was formed in the HPC BU and then about a year and a half back um, it was my great pleasure to join Hewlett Packard Labs. It's our pleasure too to have you. So you t- told us about your extremely interesting history but now you are here what is yeah. your role here today? Yeah so uh, I do uh, both uh, research and make solutions for some of the emerging technologies in AI, like reinforcement learning, which interacts with dynamic environments and is very consequential uh, in how, uh, how the real agents can interact and control uh, very uh, critical systems, both in the scientific and industrial domain. I also work on video analytics, on natural mm-hmm. language processing, uh, and AutoML, which is another fascinating area where we automatically synthesize uh, machine learning models to democratize uh, AI amongst um, amongst like many uh, users. And uh, but uh, the uh, I'd say the most interesting part of the all is to uh, instill trust in AI, mm-hmm. which is a very critical uh, aspects to make AI more broadly uh, acceptable. And uh, and I have the great pleasure of leading a very um, um, talented team of. Uh, machine learning engineers uh, who are uh, doing uh, uh, some of the most uh, like um, emerging work in the area of AI, which we would like to bring to the world, um, and uh, and they uh, they in- encompass uh, also like you know AI for good. Uh, we work uh, quite a bit on uh, clean energy, on the energy infrastructure of tomorrow, uh, like applications of AI in those areas, uh, on um, on helping the COVID uh, research scientists, um, and even. Uh, like you know, all the way to uh, using AI for video quality for movie production for one of the largest uh, movie producers in the world. So you mentioned trustworthiness of AI multiple times. What what is trustworthiness? 
It's a great question. Um, as uh, AI is getting increasingly adopted in the business critical applications and scientific computing, uh, there's uh, an increasing focus on accountability. Uh, because when we are, when AI is not the cool kid in the block, but a real player, uh, for right reason, just like you hold an expert accountable, AI is being increasingly uh, getting accountable. And also, uh, there is increased focus on uh, on mitigating bias or uh, or ensuring fairness by the government and regulators. But trustworthiness is beyond that. Like, how do you ensure an ROI uh, by stable and, and robust operation um, of AI, which you can trust? Um, and, and that also leads to the financial success of these investments. And trustworthy AI is the underpinning, is a technology underpinning of some of the AI ethics principle that HP is, have been working on along with the major industry players, uh, which are now getting quite a bit of traction and relevance in the industry. So explain to us already what is trustworthiness of AI and why it is important. But what are components, what are specific components of trustworthy AI? Uh, I think it's a, a great question. So let's first look at why is trustworthy AI needed, uh, right? So I, I'd uh, like, to f like you to focus on three points. I know three points are often uh, a little bit dangerous. Uh, the first point is, uh, in traditional uh, software what we do is, uh, we have the input, uh, we handcraft the logic, and then with that input, we produce an output. It's a very um, controlled system, uh, which, uh, you know, which we have a lot of handle on. But machine learning is something very different. There, we have the input data, and we have the expected output, and we let the machine come up with the program logic. It's a domain shift, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. Now, now with that uh, comes a lot of uncertainty, and, and that's where we need trust. Second point. Uh, what is trust uh, and how do I gain your trust? Uh, we do not know uh, everything and many of our decisions uh, have a lot of uncertainty in it. And, in order to, and if we can quantify that uncertainty, then I get your trust. Uh, the third point is, and again, I'm venturing into the third point, it's about uh, fairness, bias uh, and, and inclusivity and all those things. All of us, we have implicit bias in us, but through training, uh, through our commitment towards ethics and fairness, we mitigate those bias. Now, uh, when you are, have a machine come up with a logic, it does not have all those feelings inside it. So that's where like, we need to instill some of the human properties which can make it trustworthy. Now, uh, now th th uh, that is the reason why you need uh, trustworthiness. Now, uh, we can look a little bit beyond that, right? Say, for instance, now uh, the regulators, both in EU and, and the United States and all over the world, are looking for this trustworthiness. And there is a reason for that. Uh, say, for instance, um, you are not wearing Apple Watch, you are wearing no. a traditional watch, just like me. But even for Apple Watches, the regulations are more like an FDA regulation. It has an ECG operation in the Apple Watch. So it has to go through the same FDA regulatory process as any other drugs. Uh, so, does that answer your question? No, perfectly. It's extremely clearly uh, explained. But one thing that bothers me, you can design your AI extremely well, put desired biases, eliminate implicit bias, all of that. But then you told me that these machine learning algorithms need to learn. Yes. And they're learning from some data. So you can do everything perfectly, put in the wrong data, and you get the wrong answer. 
Yeah. How can you prevent that from happening? I think it's a great question. So uh, no data in the world is without bias. And uh, those are for historic reasons, for how statistically the different characteristics in a demographics are skewed. But we as humans do not discard the data. Uh, instead, what we do is we absorb the data and then we use our decision making to find out what is circumstantial and what is the true relevant data for a particular um, objective. So as machine learning is maturing, uh, it is becoming more aware of what is circumstantial and, and what is really relevant for what we are looking for. So the four pillars of trustworthiness are uh, transparency, trust, bias mitigation, and robustness. Uh, and now let's look at each of them, right? So if you are taking an opinion from an expert, uh, you want to know how the expert came to that opinion. And that's where transparency uh, is about. Uh, it's about how you explain uh, the different underlying um, factors from which you came to an opinion. And, and that is uh, more consequential than just telling that. That is a buy-in of your users. Uh, the second part is trust. Now, trust is not just about explainability. Trust is having a very stable, robust operation, and it comes with efficiency. Often what people make the mistake is uh, they compromise their machine learning models by just instilling explainability where the performance goes down. So that is not acceptable. The third point is bias mitigation. Uh, as you were pointing out, every data has, uh, has some bias in it. So how do we uh, come up with the methodologies to mitigate that bias goes a long way in not only fairness, but in meeting our end objective. And, and one thing that we often forget is biasness is not about just fairness. Say chest x-ray data. Uh, we are working on this chest uh, x-ray analysis for uh, 14 disease characteristics. Not all of them are represented in the same way. That puts the diseases which are less occurrent to a disadvantage. So you have to mitigate those, uh, those biases. And the last part is robustness. Robustness is about how do, uh, how do a machine learning model work on a lot of unseen data, on a lot of unseen characteristics. And, and like, you know, as we will discuss uh, during the process of this uh, communication, uh, we can discuss ways to mitigate some of the uh, robustness issues. Very nice, very nice. Um, is trustworthy AI equally applicable to any of the verticals? You mentioned some in the past. Yes. For example, there's healthcare, uh, there's manufacturing, there are many others, financial. Yes. Where is it most critical for the success of, of the business? I think that's a great question. And, um, uh, and apparently it seems that only healthcare and certain financial decisions are the most crucial ones. Um, uh, but, the, uh, but the government entity that has been most articulate about that is, uh, um, is a EU proposal uh, to the European Parliament now about, uh, about the fairness and trustworthiness. And what the EU proposal does is, it was tabled in April 21st and it is currently being debated in the European Parliament and amongst the European regulators. They, uh, they actually identified some of the high risk areas. Uh, the, the key theme about that is so that uh, human rights as well as health, safety and fairness is, are not violated. But the areas which they identified are beyond healthcare and, and financials um, are uh, things like your employment. Uh, 
-hmm. How are your reviews done? How are uh, jobs offered? Uh, how are promotions offered? So any AI which involves that comes under this purview. It's also about the academics. Again, admissions, about evaluation. Uh, and then it's uh, summer on the biometrics and on the critical infrastructure like uh, like uh, like water, energy supplies, etc., which kind of sounds uh, odd, but they are critical to uh, to you know to how uh, the entire um, uh, our lives operate. Uh, and then it's also about the services. Like credit score is a very big issue, and uh, it has been found, especially in the underdeveloped countries, that women are penalized for not having enough representation in the credit score, even, they, even though they do not default uh, that often like the men. Uh, but also for government services, mm -hmm. like whom do you pay uh, something like uh, uh, assistance? Um, so, so these are some of the areas which EU have uh, categorized as high risk areas and there are certain safeguards which have been put in place so that uh, people are not affected. Very interesting and very insightful. Thank you, Shomendu. So, if I think about trustworthiness of AI, uh, how does it relate to ethics? You touched on it, but can you go in a little bit more detail, please? Yeah. So, um, uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise has been um, has been very instrumental in this area to come up with five principles of ethics. Uh, so, th those are like you know, uh, uh, th th those are uh, privacy and security, uh, human focused. Um, uh, and then uh, robustness uh, and, and like you know uh, uh, so on and so forth right now if you look at them the the privacy preservation is is very key because many of these uh, models they uh, kind of store uh, data uh, private data in a uh, in a slightly different way which can be reconstructed uh, so and and security is also key for any of the AI systems uh, to be trustworthy, um, and and also uh, uh, robustness, as I was mentioning, is key for the invariance of how uh, data work. Uh, so uh, so yes, and human focused is you know where there's a human in a loop, so that there's a human oversight um, as to you know what is uh, how the decisions are arrived at, uh, whether uh, there are uh, uh, there are bias in the data. And, and also, as I was mentioning in the EU case, you have to document all the way by which uh, certain models have been created. So all those oversights make AI more fair. So you just intrigue me. When you put human in the loop, yes. you can gain more insights from the person, but that person can also make more mistakes in certain cases. Yes. How can you trade off these things to get the best out of humans and the least of, of problematic aspects? I think this is one of the most insightful questions I have ever faced. See, the reason uh, we have bias and lack of fairness in AI is the lack of comprehensiveness with which AI looks at a data at this uh, elemental stage of evolution of machine learning. But uh, just imagine the situation where uh, AI and machine learning becomes much more comprehensive, then it can look at the totality of the data without any implicit bias, like we humans. We, uh, we kind of camouflage our bias or we mitigate our bias, but we still have bias. So uh, a very smart machine learning will be of less bias and more fair. And just to give you an example, 
say you, you have a neighbor of a certain uh, minority ethnicity. Uh, you may have some, or not you, but many of us may have some stigma for a person of a different ethnicity. But when it's a neighbor, you know him intimately and personally. So to, to you, your neighbor is a person, an individual with certain characteristics and not a uh, member of an ethnicity. So those are some of the things which, you know, which can be um, uh, mitigated much more easily in a methodical way in machine learning. So, that, so at the end of the day, machine learning will make it a much more fairer assessment than we humans can do. So your insights and answers are, are so great that they're just creating more questions for me. Uh, as you were implying, there's implicit bias yeah. that we have. How do you deal with that bias? And especially when you try to eliminate bias, are you possibly introducing another one? And how can you explain to the users that that AI has addressed certain bias and not created more? That is actually a great question. And it's a very hot topic in, in the machine learning research at present. Uh, let me give you a simple example of a quantitative bias. So, and let me take you back to the chest X-ray uh, example. Uh, so, you know, so uh, National Institute of Health released a uh, lot of uh, frontal chest X-rays along with other data uh, for, uh, for thoracic disease identification for 14 disease categories. Now, see for three of those diseases, the representation was very limited. So, in that case, machine learning has certain techniques to boost that data up so that it becomes an equal playing field with rest of the more uh, commonly occurred uh, occurred uh, diseases. Uh, the same thing happens in a certain uh, disease identification when we implement it uh, in a bias-free way, like uh, representation of ethnic minorities in uh, disease um, uh, detection and genetics, right? Because because of the underrepresentation, those cues can be mitigated in the same way that I was explaining before. So some of it is quantitative. Very interesting. Very, very interesting, uh, Shomendu. Uh, can you tell me what are the key challenges in your experience in implementing all these algorithms and all these solutions? Leon, that's a great question. That's what uh, keeps me up in the night. And, um, and Hewlett Packard Labs have been focusing on, uh, on implementing trustworthy AI and also in a way that it is um, democratized uh, like you know, amongst the user communities. So there are three key challenges. Um, one is the design, uh, the analysis, and measurement. Um, so we are uh, working on design for trust. What design for trust is? Uh, we are embedding, uh, we are embedding entities of trust, like which ensures robustness, stability, and safeguard against adversarial attacks. Uh, we are also embedding analytics which can uh, A, detect um, uh, when there is a bias or unfairness, B, just like software, uh, it can debug when uh, there's a detection of, uh, of lack of performance or lack of trust. And three, uh, and, and the third point is it can reproduce those cases so that they can be mitigated. And the third aspect is the benchmarking and measurement. Um, so measuring the, uh, the vectors of trust is very important. 
having a common benchmark also is very important and then characterizing those uh, those uh, deficiencies in trust are very important and let me go a little bit deeper mm -hmm. see for instance uh, when we do design for trust uh, say robustness or stability say for stability uh, the machine learning model needs to consistently work across data for the same data over and over again so that it does not um, uh, act differently for similar circumstances robustness is when you have a lot of unseen data and a lot of variations happen but the machine learning model still needs to work well and that's where some of the drift detection for data and and concept drifts come in and we we uh, we intercept those drifts and we fix them in an automated way through a data foundation layer i'm going to talk uh, later and then adversarial attacks is another fascinating area of machine learning there are many ways machine learning models can be fooled so there are uh, imp inbuilt matrix by which we find out certain characteristics of adversarial attacks like say suddenly the uh, the sums are getting less and less even though we have a clear prediction of a class in that case we put in an ensemble of models that is like you are now releasing an army of smaller models which cannot be fooled because they are working as an army and not as individual models. There are also homomorphic encryptions, there is certain encryptions within encrypt the data as well as models to protect against adversarial attacks. So similarly, if we go down the path, you will see that for, uh, for analytics, as I was mentioning, um, you can uh, measure the extent to which uh, the trusts are violated, you can, you can debug them, you can reproduce them. So these are uh, like you know, some of the ways we are facing the challenges. Now we are doing one more thing on top of that, which is uh, I, I would say a big differentiator. We are bringing in a concept called AutoML, which is automatically synthesizing the machine learning models. And what it does is we know that uh, expertise in machine learning domain is still thin. But what AutoML does is since it lets our customers and users of AI to generate these machine learning models with inbuilt trust, it democratizes trustworthy AI and helps the adoption of trustworthy AI amongst a broader uh, user base. Very, very interesting. So, Shomindu, you are working on these areas. And then you mentioned in US they have certain standards. Then you mentioned in EU they are, have other standards. I'm sure in India, China, Japan, everybody has their own approaches. How does it work? How do they interoperate? Are there any standards, uh, open source? How, how, how is it coordinated? That's a great question. And I'd say that the leaders uh, in, uh, in, trust for, in trust in AI and, and many of these uh, regulations is EU. The rest of the world kind of follows the EU. I mean, that's the plain truth. Um, in Europe, uh, right from the GDPR times, uh, there have been a concerted effort to identify and mitigate the risks. And uh, the US often takes a ad hoc approach where like, you know, where when certain events happen, we react. So we are more re uh, reactionary and Europe is more proactive in mm -hmm. that. And I'd say regulations in the rest of the world are again so somewhere in between. Um, but yes, EU had been uh, in the forefront. But what EU is also doing is it is shaping the landscape of trustworthiness, how we define trustworthiness, how we mitigate them. So, so yes, I mean, they are the standard bearer. All your work uh, is not just for the sake of technology. It is all done for some higher purpose. 
And uh, as I discussed earlier in previous podcasts, in HP, like we like to think about as our work as a force for good. How do you map your work for these broader purposes? I think that's a great question. And, and one of the charters that HP has always carried uh, with HP Foundation is uh, that we need to be the force for good in the world. And we, we do that through various mechanisms. Uh, for instance, one of our commitment is towards clean energy. So we are uh, collaborating with Carnegie Clean Energy, who are one of the leading uh, manufacturers of uh, wave energy converters. Uh, now, uh, one of the critical thing is wave energy is a very reliable and predictable source of alternative energy uh, um, as compared to solar or wind. But the challenge is how do you bring down the levelized cost of energy uh, to a level where it is more competitive with solar or wind. So that's where uh, there are two approaches which are being taken place. One is uh, you refine the structures of the wave energy converter so that it can capture more of the energy of the wave, but at the same time, you change the controller so that, uh, so that it can capture through the reactive force of the generators a greater percentage of that energy available in the wave. And that's where we are helping Carnegie Clean Energy. And uh, with the reinforcement learning technology that HP has, we are already making double-digit gains over the state-of-the-art uh, spring damper technology. Uh, but beyond that, we are also looking at the energy infrastructure, we are looking at many domains of scientific computing, um, and, and, and in similar, uh, similarly, we, we, we did a natural language processing question and answer um, um, application where all the research papers in the world are, were accumulated and a researcher can ask the questions uh, and uh, to get uh, the different answers uh, which are ranked and with references which helps research. Uh, so yes, I mean that have been one of, uh, the, I'd say, one of the most rewarding part of working for Hewlett Packard Labs. Uh, I believe you, it's extremely interesting, you know, who would even think about these things. Um, there's so much discussion, appropriately so, about uh, diversity, equity and inclusion. Is AI helping us in that regard? And how? I think in the, in the long term, AI will help us in that regard. And as we all know, that when there is a diverse workforce, like what Hewlett Packard Enterprise has always advocated, we see all the different perspectives of our users, and we are not limited to just a few perspective uh, of of a narrow population. Uh, so, so that is actually a strength. And what I believe is uh, because in machine learning, we can create an intelligent entity, and instead of programming it, we are putting in policies over there which mitigates many of these um, inequities uh, in the world. We can create a much better system, a much more intelligent and better system, which we ourselves uh, cannot do. Because at every instance, I have to be very careful in what I am doing. But if I program that policy in machine learning, it will adhere to that policy and it will exceed me just like machine learning models exceed what my brain can craft in a handcrafted way, a logic. So, so just like that is a big paradigm shift where machines with their thinking brain like the human neurons, but in a much bigger scale, can come up with smarter models. They can also come up with machine learning solutions which are much more equitable, much more fair. Truly amazing, truly amazing. Um, I've been uh, really impressed how much passion you put in work. 
uh, and you're talking about keeping you awake in the night, how do you even stop working? What do you do? How do you relax? Just like now in your free time, you are, we are having this discussion. We are all passionate mm -hmm. people um, in Hewlett Packard Labs and all over Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So uh, we are just a continuum of what the rest of the company is. But yes, I mean, we, are, we feel very passionate because uh, what we think is we are solving some of the um, challenges uh, for mankind uh, in a way uh, uh, where we are bringing in more fairness to it. So we are not just uh, solving some of the machine learning problem. But what Hewlett Packard Enterprise is doing is focusing on areas where it makes it a truly great technology where everyone can be rest assured that we are putting in all the fairness and bias mitigations in the world. But do you ever stop working? And when you do, what do you do? That's a great question. Um, I have several passions, um, but before I go there, uh, I think some of our best thought process comes through subconscious thinking. Mm -hmm. So when I'm driving, I have seen I'm most productive. Uh, but uh, but work is not everything in life. And Hewlett Packard Enterprise has a great um, uh, balance um, for like you know work-life balance. Uh, so uh, three of my passions are uh, traveling to uh, to different um, uh, places like um, the national parks as well as places where. Um, the cultural aspects are more on the surface uh, where you can see them in structures, you can see them in restaurants, you can see them in very lively populations. Uh, the second part is uh, like, you know, I'm passionate about uh, growing roses from mm. bare roots, uh, which uh, opens up the possibility of many different species of roses, which otherwise I cannot just go and buy. Um, and, uh, and also create a rose garden uh, beyond our property so that people walking on the trail can appreciate that. And the third part is computational photography. I used to work professionally on computational photography at Intel, uh, but um, that's a very uh, intriguing area. So one of the, um, one of the studio owners in Venetian uh, once approached me uh, for a partnership, and it, it is about how do you stitch very wide views uh, landscapes, um, urban landscapes, etc., with high dynamic range photography, and then instill some of the artificial intelligence stylizations, uh, which makes amazing um, pictures, um, which you, you, you can often see in Las Vegas in Venetia. So interesting. Uh, I can hardly wait to see both the pictures of your roses and this computational photography. And for the last question, Shomendu. Uh, you came from India and, and you've been uh, around the United States. How do you see the cultural differences across all these regions? Uh, let me first go into the heritage. So we all are a collage of ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So I thought that I was 100% Indian. So when I did my uh, profile in 23andMe, um, I discovered that on my dad's mom's side, uh, they actually originated from uh, northern Iran. Uh, like among some of the persecuted population, the Kurdish and some Majandrani mm -hmm. uh, mix. And on my dad's dad's side, uh, part of the heritage comes from Central Asia. Um, having said that, I'm uh, mostly ethnically Indian. Um, and um, Bengali. Bengali, which, uh, which, has, uh, which is one of the most common languages in the world, fifth to seventh, based on which uh, matrix you follow. Now, uh, one of the underlying thing about India is their uh, very strong uh, commitment to democratic institutions. And uh, that, I think, gels with some of the underlying thought processes uh, in, in, in the United States. 
Um, the other factor, of course, is uh, the opportunity differential, which drives a huge immigration from India over the United States. And that, in a way, um, is very similar to the population influx that we see from Latin America, from Africa, from other places of Asia and Europe. Like you yourself are an immigrant. So, you know, so those are, uh, yeah. So intriguing. Uh, I learned a lot and I hope all our audiences has as well. Thank you very much, Somendu. It has been a pleasure talking to you and it was such an ins insightful question which really makes me think and challenges me. Thank you.